0: And I'm Jerry Agar, in for John Moore again today. Coming up later, Bob Reed will be in for me. There's a press conference planned for 10 o'clock this morning. Premier Doug Ford to appear with Health Minister Sylvia Jones. We don't really know what that's about, um, but they'll be handling it, paying attention to it on uh, my regular show from nine to noon today on the Daily Brief this morning. Joining me is Mark Tui. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Jerry Yeager. You are
1: listed as trusted advisor to business and political leaders. Absolutely. If they uh, didn't trust me, they wouldn't pay me heaping stacks of cash. (laughs) Well, (laughs) congratulations.
0: (laughs) Um, Do you have any idea what this uh, press conference is about this morning? No one has trusted me with that, Jerry. Okay, all right then. Um, So yesterday, the Auditor General, Bonnie Lissick, had her report. And uh, here's what I think kind of uh, is is the underpinning of the whole thing. In our Audit Emergency Management in Ontario pandemic responses, we found that the province was clearly not adequately prepared and trained for an emergency of this magnitude. We brought this state of unpreparedness to its attention in our 2017 audit on emergency management in Ontario. However, we found that in the past three years, only 4 or 11% of the 36 recommended actions that the Ministry of the Solicitor General was responsible for have been implemented. All right. So this is I said earlier this morning and you worked in government. So tell me if I'm on the right track here. I said we always hear after in the after action report of something serious that, oh, my gosh, in hindsight, we made some mistakes. By golly, lessons are learned. And then it turns out, no,
1: they weren't. Well, the lessons are learned, but they're often not acted upon. And, you know, when it comes to Auditor General's reports, auditors General are great things to have because you really need somebody on uh, quasi on the inside, but responsible to the taxpayer to come in and have a look at things and uncover stuff and really make sure the government is doing what the government said it was going to do. So they're always fascinating to read. Uh, but that doesn't mean they're always right. Uh, sometimes they're wrong, but in this case, I don't think they were. Were. I think one of the interesting things uh, that I noted during the pandemic was that we have this entire emergency management apparatus that does train frequently and does have uh, you know contingency plans that it routinely updates, but uh, it really wasn't used at all during the pandemic. The government went out of its way to create an entirely brand new, from scratch, emergency decision-making app, you know system uh, that ignored the one that it had paid millions of dollars to put in place, and I've wondered often why. Well, uh, part of what got talked about
0: in the uh, report from Bonnie Lissick yesterday was the disparity between what they paid doctors to go to a clinic and give people a vaccination and what they paid the nurses. It was three or four times the amount they paid the doctor. Could they have run those clinics without the doctors? Like, rather than argue the doctors should have worked cheaper than $107 an hour. Just don't even hire the doctors for that. They seem overqualified.
1: Yeah, I, I think the question that needs to be answered is why were they using doctors? I suspect part of the answer is they were looking for all hands on deck from everywhere. And since family doctors weren't seeing patients face to face, some of them might have been available to be relocated and retasked uh, during these uh, vac- mass vaccination clinics. I know one time, uh, you know, one of my vaccination shots was given by a physician. Uh, so, you know, it's just the going right you a, you know a master mechanic to fix your car uh, you know you pay one rate you hire a journeyman mechanic uh, to fix your car you pay a much lower rate they do exactly the same work on the other hand I imagine they wanted some physicians in each of these mass clinics uh, to be there in case of adverse reactions so while you're here in case there's a problem uh, you might as well be jab in arms
0: okay well somebody wrote in earlier one of our listeners wrote in earlier and said it might have also been to uh, up confidence from not-so-confident people in the beginning of this. I'm like,
1: yeah, I, I, I mean, definitely there could be very many reasons. But, I mean, underlying this whole concept is, you know, should we pay doctors more than nurses? And I think the conventional thinking is, well, yes, because well, yeah. doctors do more than nurses. Although I think we need to question that going forward because there are a lot of things that we have traditionally assigned to a certain type of... Uh, you know, educational profile in our medical system that I'm not sure makes sense anymore. All right. Let's talk about some other things. Um, Mayor
0: John Tory of the city of Toronto was on the rush last night talking about the dire financial situation the city is in and getting some help from the province. Well, we told everybody, uh, Rashmi, that the total was $703 million. That's yeah. the accumulated COVID expenses for uh, 2022. And so they're giving one third of $703 million. So, you know, we still have 500000000 million, let's say, to go, uh, but a little less than that. But uh, I hope if the federal government comes in in some uh, way shape or form i would hope at least a third uh and then uh you know we'll go from there but uh, this is a good start and i commend the province for this and now uh, the federal government which has committed uh in writing to help us uh you know it's it's their turn to step up and i say that respectfully but i just think this is uh, an economy that is of vital importance to the entire country and that we need to get that support uh, from the governments that have more sources of income than we do all right so were they always going to come through with some money for the city
1: I think they were going to come through with a portion of it because uh, particularly the province, I mean, the city legally doesn't have to exist under Canada's constitution. The province and the federal governments between the two of them divide up responsibilities for everything. So ultimately, it will always be the province's responsibility. And if you're the federal government right now, you're probably looking for a way to uh, to let the province uh, wear most of this, other than for political considerations and the fact that uh, people in Toronto like to vote Liberal.
0: Alright, so uh, the Ontario Health uh, um, sorry, the the um, government is insisting, the Ford government is insisting, there was no Insider information shared with developers before they came out with the announcement of some changes in the green belt. Although there was at least one developer that snapped up some property that seemed undevelopable um, only weeks before it became developable. Does the government
1: have a bit of an optics problem here? Uh, I'm not. Well, optics, yes. I think, though, that, uh, I mean, this is something that is worth looking into, and I suspect that there will be uh, a number of investigations uh, launched to have a look into it. I note that the minister himself, you know, took a day, uh, probably, this is me speculating, but to make sure that he didn't tell anybody uh, something that he wasn't supposed to tell them, because they speak to a lot of people about a lot of things and do a lot of consultation on decisions like this. So, you know, his reticence to answer immediately when I- asked, I think, makes sense to me. That said, you know, I've worked in and around uh, developers on both sides of the table, government and you know the private sector side, and they routinely buy pieces of uh, property that are undervalued for one reason or another, usually because they're undevelopable. And part of what developers do is they spend 20 years uh, trying to make them developable. And so, you know, it'd be interesting to compare how many pieces of property changed hands that uh, didn't then suddenly increase in value because of a change in policy before we can really tell whether or not this is just a one-off or this was uh, foreknowledge. Well, that's an interesting
0: point that nobody else has brought up. This is why you get paid heaps of money to be a consultant, um, Mark Tui, because a, a, any reporter who came out with the story, so-and-so developer bought this piece of property and then this happened. What other pieces of property has that developer acquired over the last year or so, and are any of those about to become incredibly valuable, or are they going to sit there for 20 years? Like that's, um, That is a part of the story. But it is also an optics thing that Ford is going to have to deal with, because the subtleties of what you're bringing up are really not going to take hold.
1: Yeah, you have to look at uh, a much bigger array of uh, land acquisitions in order to to figure that out. I mean, one of the things the City of Toronto created was Build Toronto, and it was to try to redevelop city-owned land to make it worth more money, so that they could sell it or somehow get an income from it, and you know they would take these tiny slivers of land that the city already owned, but it would take years to move through the committee of adjustment process, the rezoning process, uh, all of these different uh, uh, administrative processes before they could turn a piece of land that had been zoned only for mailboxes or something like that yeah. into something that you could build a tiny little sliver of a condo on and go up a hundred stories and make big bucks.
0: All right, Mark Tui, always good to talk to you. Thanks very much. Take care, Jerry.